0: Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Changing the Game with HR, presented by SAP, the best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the HR status quo and how people are organized, engaged, and motivated to create real business impact. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the game changers, you're in the right place because this is where the best run. Yes. Let's see what the buzz on the street is. I have a quote from Klaus Schwab. He's the author of The Fourth Industrial Revolution, a book that came out a little over two years ago, January 11, 2016. He is the founder and executive chairman of, wait for it, the World Economic Forum. And he's convinced that the period of change we're living through is more significant and the ramifications of the latest tech revolution more profound than any prior period of human history. So let me read you the quote. This is part of a quote from his book. He says, take dramatic technological change as an invitation to reflect about who we are and how we see the world. So that sets us up for our topic today. Let me give you a little more background. We've been hearing about digitalization in the workforce for so long that it's buzzworthy and most of us know that it has something to do with process automating technology, reshaping the human resources practice. Human resources, we call it HR, we call it HCM, human capital management. I've heard people debate the term capital put next to human. Are we really capital? Are we really assets? I don't know. But beyond this, what does it really mean to digitalize HR and to give your workforce the tools they need to drive to true business Transformation. And the question on the table today is really, we have technology and we have people. Are they equal? Are they side by side? Are they interacting? Will tech overtake the human part? Will people still be on top of the technology? How do we balance this out? So our topic officially is Game Changing HR. People in the fourth industrial revolution. I know that's a lot to get your arms around, but I have a panel of three experts who are going to help us figure out and help me figure it out too. First up in just a moment, it will be my pleasure to introduce you to a newcomer to Game Changers Radio. She is Joanne Mendels M E N D L E S, the founder of a company called Thirty Four Park LLC, and she's involved in other organizations these days. She'll tell us all about what she's up to. Joining her is a Turning guest, James Sinclair, who is now the principal of a company called Enterprise Alumni together one word with a capital A and rounding out the panel where would we be without the sponsor of this series Dr. Patty Fletcher she's the author of the best selling book that is keeping her flying all over the country and the world talking about it called Disruptors Success Strategies from Women Who Break the Mold she's also a leadership futurist at SAP Success Factors thank you to the three of you for joining me so let's start out with Joanne Mendels and Joanne has sent me a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt and by the way Joanne Eleanor Roosevelt seems to be coming into favor again. I get a lot of quotes from her on many of our series. Anna Eleanor Roosevelt, 1884 to 1962. She was the First Lady of the U.S. from 1933 to 45, the longest-serving First Lady of the U.S. ever. She also served as a U.S. delegate, delegate to the U.N. General Assembly. And Harry Truman later called her the First Lady of the World because of her human rights achievements. Here's the quote. With the New Day comes new strength and new thoughts. Joanne Mendels, welcome to Game Changers. How are you? I'm very well, Bonnie. Thanks so much for the intro. We are delighted to have you. You're a lady of many talents and many, many expertises, and I'm very excited to have you on, and I really want to know. We're talking about fourth industrial revolution. We're talking about people, technology, and you picked up a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt who was gone long before any of this happened. So tell us how this quote relates to our topic, please.
2: Well, I think Eleanor Roosevelt transcends periods like crazy. So she chaired the Universal Declaration of Human Rights Drafting Committee in the late 1940s. While I doubt she or the committee could fully envision 2020, their emphasis on what they call the human family, I feel, holds true more than ever. So in blurring the lines, as we say, between people and technology, I feel it's essential that our humanness remain core. Technology is increasing exponentially in every aspect of our everyday lives. So we mustn't lose sight of our humanness in our core selves and with one another. So let's feel the strength of humanity and embrace a diversity of thoughts and PI, people intelligence, instead of artificial intelligence.
1: I like that, people intelligence. We're getting back to the human. Do you have any problem, Joanne, with human capital management, the term HCM, thinking of people as capital? Do you think that dehumanizes, or does it just make it a little more businesslike? What's your thought?
2: I don't have a view either way. I broadly think about resources of uh, which humans are resources um, in a very positive way. so um, we think about capital capital as assets that we all have to be mindful and take advantage of. Um, I'm fine with the term.
1: okay, thank you very much. just wanted to know appreciate it and welcome. <laughs> And now let's turn a little bit around the table to James Sinclair, who is back with a new company named Enterprise Alumni, and he has sent us a quote from Tony Robbins. My goodness, I don't think we've had many Tony Robbins quotes over the years, James, so I was delighted. Let me give a little background here. His real name was Anthony J. Mahavorik, uh, Anthony Tony J, J-A-Y Robbins is what he goes by, American author, entrepreneur, ph- philanthropist, and peak performance life coach, known for his infomercials seminars, and self-help books, and the most too popular are Unlimited Power and Awaken the Giant Within. He's the founder of several companies that earn a mere $6 billion a year in, in sales, and he was listed on the Worth Magazine Power 100 list in 2015 and 16. and here is the quote. The meeting of preparation with opportunity ger- generates the offspring we call luck. I like that. James, welcome back. How have you been?
3: Good. Thank you, Bonnie. And yes, I do like that quote. Um, I'm sure he's not the only one to have said it, um, but uh, I attribute it to him. That's
1: just fine. So talk to me. We're talking about fourth industrial revolution, people, technology. Here you've got a quote that packs a punch with preparation, opportunity, and luck. How does this all fit our topic? James?
3: Well, I think there's two things that I liked about this quote as it relates to people, human capital management, and changing HR. There's one, which is this massive war cry that every job's going to be gone and our people are unprepared and we're teaching our kids the wrong things and we should all freak out because you're going to be automated. I saw a commercial this morning from an online university that showed a single mother working in a factory, and one by one, all of her colleagues were being terminated and replaced with computers. Until she finally was terminated and replaced with a computer, so she had to go back to university and learn technical skills to then become successful. And, and I think this fearmongering actually is not fair. Um, and I think it's all about preparation. It's all about being ready. I think change is inevitable, always, and. Companies and how they look at their people, whether we want to include empathy or not, it's a competency conversation. Whether you are a tractor that can plow the field or a human that knows how to engineer in a specific language, that is the asset that you are. And I think we're seeing this change now where companies are going to have to be more human about it because people's competencies change. You don't join a job and do the same thing for 30 years. You will have a a life cycle and a competency arc. And so, Really, my quote was focused around recognising that change is always inevitable, independent of this particular revolution. Yes, it's happening quicker, but it's also opening more opportunities. And for those people that can recognise and embrace that, um, they will be prepared to uh, to have luck where, when whatever the inevitable happens does happen.
1: Thank you very much. Very thoughtful answer to that question, and I'm, I'm very intrigued. Uh, you mentioned some interesting buzzwords. We'll pick them up later. But my question to you is the same one I asked Joanne Mendels a few minutes ago. Do you find that HCM is, a, is in any way derogatory to humans by calling them capital and assets, or what do you think? Is that okay?
3: I think it's better than just calling them an, a competency assets. Um, but I think that in reality, that's what it is. A company has to manage the competencies of their organization in an asset-based way, but now they have to add another human layer, which is recognizing change, improvement, advancement, and the fact that they have to care about these people for their entire career life cycle, not just for the time or period that they are with the organization. So I don't mind the phrase. I just think it has to add a little bit more emphasis on human. Maybe human should be in bold.
1: I, I like that a lot, and it's funny thing, in the quote you sent, I didn't, I didn't bother to look up the source, you said it was Tony Robbins and maybe others, but I wanted to put luck with a capital L if it's a proper name, because when we talk about offspring, we name them. But I remember what you said a moment ago, James, that really caught my attention. You talked about, I think, the unfortunate fear-mongering of people losing their jobs to robots. Can you just give me a couple of sentences to expand that thought? I haven't heard it put that way, and I think you're absolutely on the mark. Tell me just a little bit more.
3: Well, I think we've seen studies and conversations, and I forget what the exact percentages are, that you know, by the time your kid uh, reaches the workforce, uh, his or her job won't, won't even have existed today, um, the commercial I referenced, and also how fast this is happening. I think one of the reasons why we're calling this the fourth industrial revolution is the velocity or, you know, the speed at which we're seeing this movement. And I think there are people who are taking this position of, oh, my God, we're totally unprepared. Uh, and so really, I wanted to recognize that I think a lot of the quotes that we're seeing and a lot of the uh, leadership, thought leadership even coming in, it is actually not fair in terms of all of these jobs, everything going. It's just a changing workforce. It's just about learnings. And to be fair, the this was the same 30 years ago. You know, I'm not a coal miner because coal miner jobs don't really exist. And I think it's just a different and a velocity that people need to to recognize. Um, That's kind of what I thought. I'm sure Paddy can put it way more eloquently.
1: Oh, you're very eloquent, all on your own, James Sinclair, not to worry about that, but I, that's a great segue for me. Thank you, Dr. Patty Fletcher, waiting so patiently, and Patty has sent us a quote from way back in lore, I would say. Uh, it's a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, 1803 to 1882, American essayist, lecturer, philosopher and poet who led the transcendental movement of the mid-19th century, seen as a champion of individualism. That's an interesting word in our context, Patty. His essay, Nature, was 1836. He gave a speech entitled The American Scholar in 1837, which well, Oliver Wender Holmes Sr., considered to be America's intellectual declaration of independence. Very, very interesting. And his doctrine was the infinitude of the private man. And he was a mentor of Henry David Thoreau. There we go. Here's the quote. Everybody listen up. These are words to live by. The purpose of life is not to be happy, it is to be useful, to be honorable, to be compassionate. To have it make some difference that you have lived and lived well. Patty, I cry whenever I read that quote. How how could you do that to me on live radio? How are you, Patty Fletcher? What's new with you?
4: I am great, Bonnie. I am I am like you said, I'm enjoying the book tour. Absolutely for sure.
1: Good, and you're you're ground. You're sitting somewhere, not in a plane today, which is great. Patty, talk to me. We're talking about fourth industrial revolution, and you have the nerve to pick up a quote from a guy who passed away in 1882. I'm teasing you. He is he is certainly quotable in so many ways. Ralph Waldo Emerson, part of our our vocabulary, even if young people don't realize what he meant and what he was talking about back in the day. So talk to me about this quote. I thought we were supposed to be happy. I thought that was an inalienable right. So why not, Patty? Go ahead.
4: So, yeah, I would I would have, how funny is this if I could go back in time and tell Ralph Waldo Emerson that I would have reworded some of his things. Um, that wouldn't be at all like me, but I would actually. So we can't just be happy and lots of invest in being happy. It's the sources of what makes us happy. And so those of us who have been in the people business for a long time have felt this enormous pressure to not only for HR people, but what how HR people Train their leaders to, gosh, to almost treat employees with kid gloves, right? How, uh, you know, trying to, to get them to do their work, trying to trying to treat them, um, just you know, make everything pretty and perfect and beautiful, and that's not reality. The job of the people in charge who are going to be saying, okay, here is our strategy, here is our, our investment approach when it comes to the fourth industrial revolution and the machines that we need to be more innovative, to have a better bottom line, to, to upskill people. Those are all about productivity and we know engagement's really bad. James, you might know the number better than me, but I think it's like between 85 and 90 percent over the last 10 years it's remained that folks are actively disengaged. They don't want you to call them pretty and give them a nice bow. What they really <laughs> want are tools that help them be productive, to help them be able to do their jobs That's when the engagement really starts to come on board. Then people get personally satisfied. Then they get happy. The number one challenge is for most people, I don't know how the work I do actually impacts what it is we are trying to do as an organization. And I can't wait for you to ask me the question about human capital management because it directly relates to this.
1: Oh, I wasn't going to. I'm only teasing, of course. Patty, (laughs) HCM, human capital management, talking about people as assets, just like we talk about content as an asset. What's your thought? Is it human resources? Is it HCM? What would you rather call it?
4: Well, first, let's define what it is. Um, so what, one thing I cannot stand, and I'm sure, Bonnie, I've, I've said it on um, the show before, is it makes me cringe when I see CEO after CEO after CEO stand on stage and say, our people are our most important asset. Do not put me on your financial statement. You don't own me. <laughs> this is not an <laughs> asset you get to Thank own. you. Right? But, but what is an asset? is the talent, the output of who I am, of the work I do, with the tools that are useful, help me be honorable, right? All of those things. That's what the company owns. They own the output of what I bring to the table, which is my emotional intelligence. It is my skills. It is my background. It is my knowledge. It is the the people who I can bring to the table. That's what human capital is just like you have money in your wallet, you have skills, you have output, you have impact. And while you work for a company, their job is to make the most of that. And also, not just at the individual level, look at how that kind of output is, is brought together with the other people's capital in which they own. That's what human capital is. It's an output. It's not actually about the person. And that is the only true competitive differentiator, right? We will eventually be able to copy something when a patent it's gone, we can copy a process. What is completely impossible to, to copy is not only the individual human capital, but the, the aggregation, the mix, the what comes when you bring multiple human capital together. So I don't mind the term because I know it's not about the person. It's about the output of the person. Thank you very
1: much. Interesting question around the table. Patty knows I just come up with stuff on the fly and like to poll the panel and see what they think. So we certainly had some great thoughts there. And now let's go around the table to Joanne Mendels. And Joanne, we have three questions for you. I told you on our prep call, I told you there were two questions, two personal questions, but not TOO personal. I'm going to give you three. Number one, where are you calling from today? Number two, what's your favorite drink in the whole wide world? I've looked you up on LinkedIn. You're a very powerful person doing a lot of work for many companies. So I want to know what really gets you powered. And number three, tell us a little bit about 34 Park and what you're doing now. Joanne, it's all yours.
2: Okay. I'm calling from the state of New Jersey in the United States. And my favorite drink, the audience may have to do some Googling as I describe it, is an egg cream. Oh, Joanne. Oh, Jo! I, I know that. I, I
1: grew up with those. Oh, Keep going. Go. We'll, we'll do a poll right. and see if so, James well, may not know it. Talk to me. What's an yeah, egg cream so, to you?
2: Yes, yeah, so oh. everyone can, can start Googling. <sighs> and there may be another term that folks have to Google. So when I was a little girl. On special treat occasions, my mother would take me to a soda fountain. So that may be the second phrase that people have to Google. So we'd sit at the counter or in a booth, and my mother would order us egg creams. I really, really do still like them, but the memory of that one-on-one time (sighs) with my mother... In that special, unique setting, just makes the drink even more special than the taste or the form or whatever. So I go immediately, anytime I have one, right back to those beautiful memories, and I do enjoy the beverage.
1: Wow, you brought me back in time. My mom used to take me to Howard Johnson's after school once a week. Rain or shine or snow, it wasn't too far away in, uh, in Douglas and Little Neck, Long Island, New York. And we used to order the hot dog in the square bun and hot chocolate with whipped cream on top. But I grew up with egg creams. And do you want to give the recipe or shall I, Joanne?
2: So um, for the audience, for our listeners today, um, there is there are no eggs or cream. <laughs> um, in an egg cream <laughs> very simple it's milk there are debates about the type of syrup uh, yes. i've tried different ones it most people think it's chocolate but there's um you can also look at the you know did the original syrup come from brooklyn new york and then carbonated soda water
1: and, and is it's, this
2: it's, that's is the simple? This? So if you haven't had it, folks, yep. go out and make it. Joanne,
1: did you use u Bet Syrup? Yes. Okay. I know because David Fox from the Fox You Bet family ended up being the mayor of Great Neck Estates. And when I was a reporter for the Great Neck (laughs) record in 1998, I interviewed him as the new mayor because my beat was local politics for the record. For the record. And David was so happy with the interview, he delivered to my... Department, a case of U-Bet syrup, which Patty and James may have a good laugh out of this. It came in glass jars, not plastic glass jars. These huge <laughs> quart jars of chocolate syrup. I was about to just overdose on you bet so I started giving them away as gifts to friends, but we grew up with U-Bet syrup. It's a capital U B E T and a picture of a girl in a circle with a yellow label. Joanne, y- you've almost stopped the whole show. I'm sorry. This, such great memories. Thank you. Now, tell me, let's get back to business here. 34 Park, what is it? What did you do there?
2: Okay, so um, I, now, now this is going to be boring in compared to the angry discussion. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I'm a, a C-suite technology and operations executive. My business has been technology for a very long time uh, across industries, um, typically a, a chief operating officer uh, type of role or general manager running P&Ls. And I'm also a for-profit independent board director.
1: And 34 Park, what was that company? Are you? Is it still around? How did you come up with the name?
2: So, um, well, we're going to go back to my um, parents again. I grew up at 34 Parkway. My father was a wonderful gentleman, um, wonderful dad, whom I admired greatly. And he and I bonded as I got older over business. And so when I formed uh, my own company, didn't want to fully call it the 34 Parkway, so I shortened it to 34 Park. And I know then that brings back fond memories of many, many years of conversations and insights and learnings from my father.
1: Thank you very much. A lot of good family history there. I'm appreciating so got both that. So you parents in,
2: in, in the two questions. <laughs>
1: wonderful, wonderful. It still always comes back to family, I know. You're, yeah, you're, you're all making me cry today. You shouldn't do that to a radio host. James Sinclair, where are you today? What do you love to drink? And catch us up on your new company, Enterprise Alumni. What's going on?
3: Thanks, Bonnie. So I think my new drink is the egg cream obviously, <laughs> having just Googled it. <laughs> um, but I, I also think that there's a great use now case Now, don't go have a robot
2: make it change.
3: Touche. <laughs> Touche. Go okay. ahead. Exactly. It's, you know, this advent of technology, this is exactly what the fourth industrial revolution is, is the ability to access information so quickly, I was able to Google it, find out what it was, and if I wanted to, go on to Postmates, order it, and have it here in 15 minutes. And I think this is kind of so relevant to this conversation. So, yes, I'm hoping within about 20 minutes that's going to be my new favorite drink. Um, So thank you for that. It sounds amazing.
1: Wonderful. And what's up with you? What are you doing?
3: So Enterprise Alumni is servicing alumni and retirees that are leaving large organizations. We recognize there was a massive gap in the market that large enterprises spend a lot of time investing in recruiting the best talent, training, educating, um, servicing them, taking care of them. And then when they leave, they're like, well, good luck. And that's the end of the conversation. And we couldn't think of, and I don't want to use the word asset because I don't want Patty to interrupt me, but we couldn't think of any other (laughs) asset that you would potentially invest that much money into and then let walk away. And so we recognized one thing. Number one, that in this war for talent and the war for skills and the changing labor market, moving to project and gig economy, that you needed to access what we believe is the most verified, because you employed them at one point, and available talent pool on the market and the second reason we thought it was so critical is because we think hr is changing towards the end user the the me of the world the you of the world owning your talent your performance as opposed to the company so that kind of ties into what patty was saying that right now when you work for a company your competencies your performance your learning is all in their hr system we think we're moving where actually it's going to be tied to me And and that becomes more mobile. So to make it much easier for companies to engage and create a community out of their alumni, we saw as a tremendous advantage, not just for talent, but also for sales, business development, innovation, whatever those topics are, why would you essentially not harness the power of this massive, massive group of people?
1: Thank you very, very much. Nice to have you back. And Dr. Patty Fletcher, I can't wait to hear what you're drinking. Where in the world are you today and how's it going with the book? Give us a little little book tour report.
4: Absolutely. So today I am in Guilford, Connecticut. I am on the water. So I am looking outside from my window at the ocean. I'm about I don't know, 30 feet away, Um, and it's raining, and I don't care because it's so beautiful. Um, And the book is going – it's unbelievable. Um, the, The kinds of questions I'm getting on the book have just evolved so much, and it's very much tied to this topic. When we look at the fourth industrial revolution, as James was talking about, we have such shifts in the talent economy. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of no stone unturned, right? One of my favorite slides that I've been using lately is the picture of a robot that has employee of the year with the question, is this the face of your new boss? And, you know, it is really just incredible how we are looking at talent so broadly now. Not only do we have 50% of the workforce who are women and we can further, you know, look at further intersections there in terms of race and, and personal culture and all that kind of stuff, but we also have robots, right? We also have people whose mm-hmm. work is being replaced. And it's just very interesting because the conversations going from, the, the, the name of the book is called Disruptors, Success Strategies, from Women Who Break the Mold. And in fact, Joanne Mendel is in that book. She is oh, one of the disruptors' profiled. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic. Um, one of my, my favorite profiles that are out there. And, um, and so what we're seeing is a change in conversation around how we've talked about talent, how it's different, what does it mean to companies? And those are the kinds of questions I'm getting. It's fascinating absolutely fascinating so yes it's going really well it's expanding beyond corporate I'm talking to all sorts of people and I'm just absolutely thrilled but what I'm most thrilled about is we're moving beyond the wine into the house so exciting and like you said it's been number one on the publishers um, list since it came out in January so very very
1: exciting Congratulations, Patty. That's wonderful yeah. news. So, so proud of you and uh, glad to hear mm-hmm. that Joanne is in your book. And I will talk about it was raining here. I moved to Durham, North Carolina 10 months ago, all settled in. I, instead of looking at Middle Neck Road and Great Neck Joanne, I'm looking on my front yard garden with all my plants and flowers. And we had pounding rain about a half hour ago. But what's interesting about Durham is I think it has Miami weather because when we get a rainstorm, it could be anywhere from four minutes to 40 minutes. And then bingo, it stops and boom, the sun comes out. The sky is mostly blue right now with a few fluffy white clouds in it. And it's just amazing for me to deal with a whole new weather pattern coming from New York the past 35 years. I love egg creams. I'm probably going to go out and find you bet syrup, but it's in a plastic bottle right now. I do have some seltzer in the in the fridge and I always have milk on hand, but Patty knows they don't let me anywhere near caffeine on radio show days, and Patty, Wednesdays are now a two-show day as are Tuesdays. We have one show on Thursdays, and one Game Changer show is debuting soon on Mondays, so I'm not going to be drinking much coffee anymore after this, but I was never a big fan. Uh, So what I wanted to say was we're going to skip the break because we're having such a good conversation. We don't have enough time to take the 90-second break. So Joanne Mendels, I'm going to tell you that I'm going to pick one of your topics from the wonderful list you sent me before the show, and we're just going to have you give us about two minutes of expansion on it, and then we will invite James Sinclair and Dr. Patty Fletcher to chime in, and then I'll pick one from James's list and one from Patty, and let's see how far we get. So... Very interesting here, Joanne. Um, I like the one about risks. You say inherent in industry 4.0, and we're talking about industrial revolution 4.0, 4, is rethinking and accepting risk. I'm just going to read that as a teaser, Joanne, and why don't you tell us a little bit about what you mean and how it relates to our topic of where do people fit in, where does technology fit in, which is going to run whom, will the robots be running the world, and will they be human capital? substitutions. I know that's a lot. Joanne, talk to me.
2: Okay. So um, I'm a P&L uh, gal, market gal. So reality is imperatives remain for privacy controls, cryptography, cyber offense and defense, intellectual property protection and compliance. But we live in a world where the norms are open sharing. Social media is in control of companies' brands versus the company. We have frequent, unpredictable emergence of new channels and competitors with now low barriers to market entry, intelligent automation of operations, etc. So our business strategies are integrating the art of the possible accelerators and others' innovations in this open world of ecosystems into their operating models. So then risk planning, assessment, and monitoring – Tools and metrics need to evolve with leadership strategies and enabling technology capabilities. So just as the upside of technology-based innovation is expanding, so can be the potential downside. And risk management and scenario modeling need to be thoughtfully built in versus tacked on uh, to the total system of the company and to the ecosystem. So that's one dimension of, of rethinking and accepting risks, that you can't just have it one way in terms of all of the freedom and the expansion and the speed um, that the new era provides for us. The other dimension that is really key, particularly in large enterprises, is that legacy systems and processes which are running current operations and where huge investments have been made, often are not compatible with emerging tech um, and those operating models. So a risk-reward um, really requires a lot of conversation up and down across the enterprises and external about where to invest. And by the way, that includes people skills as mm-hmm. well as systems and technology and operating models, et cetera. And what are the pros and cons of not moving forward versus moving forward? So it's very different, not black and white at at all, um, in in leadership discussions um, and in points of view.
1: Thank you. Very provocative. I like introducing the term risk into this conversation. James Sinclair, love to get your thoughts. Agree or disagree with Joanne Mendel's?
3: Yeah, totally agree. And I think it's a really great way of putting it as well. And I think all companies are starting to really have to recognize what is the risk if we don't? What is the risk if we do? Um, And with the speed and the pace of change, we don't always know what the answer is. And we don't always know what the output will be. And so I think it's critical to identify what is the baseline as a company that we agree to. Um, You know, I had a a recent company we spoke to that had a survey that went out. And obviously, I'll leave the company unnamed. And the first Mm -hmm. question was, are you happy here? Rate one to 10. Um, And a majority of people actually weren't that happy. But the second question, if you put that you weren't that happy, was, do you intend to leave? And the overwhelming response was, no, not even thinking about it. And the answer they gave was, because we're happy here, we like this as a company, Um, we like the people we work with, but we don't feel we're working quick enough, fast enough to be competitive. So the reason people Mm. weren't happy wasn't because they weren't getting benefits or lunch or or all of the things that you would usually assign to, to being happy in a workplace. It's because of their faith in their company's ability to kind of get into what's next and do it fast and try things and break things and be willing to break the mold a little bit. And I thought that was great insight because usually someone's not happy. It's, well, I don't like the facilities. I don't like who I'm working Mm -hmm. with. I don't like my manager. I'm not paid enough. But in this case, it was nothing to do with that. There was people that were vested in the company's success. And so they had no intention of leaving. They just wanted the company to move faster. And I think that really applies to, you know, what Joanne talked about with risk a little bit.
1: That was surprising. What you just shared with us, James. Thank you. Yes, you would think. Well, I don't get enough vacation, and I don't have an office with a window. But it was. It was a much bigger picture. I think there's hope in them Nar Hills. Patty Fletcher, join us. What do you think?
4: I love this topic. Um, and James, I can't help but think about the Ralph Waldo Emerson quote with what you just said. Right? What people are looking for. When I was listening, I, I agree, um, and I, I do think it's important. I would. I would say, though, when it comes to this topic, I'm not sure we have the right skill level here. Um, when I see the kind of big picture strategy discussions happening and um, in, in risk is being assessed, I think there's still an antiquated view of the questions that we should ask ourselves when it comes to risk, just like the questions that we ask ourselves when it comes to people. And James, you brought up the art of what's possible, right? And being able to build that and give your people what they need in order to try new things, right? To have a different risk appetite, which I think is critically important, but we need guardrails around that. We need policy. We need strategy. We need a culture around risk-taking that's reflected in, what is it I'm looking to do? What's my risk? What is my response to that risk? What am I willing to accept? What am I not? And there's so much data out there. We have, gosh, I think it's what we've, we have created more data in the last week than we have in the last 10 years, right? We all see that kind of stuff. The challenge becomes there's so much data, both enterprise and external data that can help inform those what if scenarios, help inform what those strategies to be, that it becomes overwhelming. It goes back to what are the questions that we should be asking when it comes to risk and therefore what's the data that we have and, and, you know, where do we, where do we go from there? It's, huge. The other thing I'd put in here is is the data itself, people data. So when we think about privacy and protection uh, around people data, we tend to think of it from the CRM perspective or from the, the sales perspective, right, about customers. And we all feel that whenever we log on to something and some algorithm just seems to know that I was just Zappos again buying another pair of shoes, right? Mm-hmm. And But we have to think about that as HR people, as business leaders, when it comes to our people. And we know that GDPR, um, which is the the General Data Protection Regulation over in Europe, represents a culture of of opt-in. Over here in the U.S., we have a culture of, of opt-out. We're signed up for everything. Our data is used for everything. We have to go make the move. So when we're thinking about risk, when we're thinking about what we're exposing our companies to, we have to think about what we're exposing our people to as well. It's it's such a never-ending, awesome, um, awesome topic. I love it.
1: Thank you, Patty, and it's your topic, this because this is your series, and I appreciate that. Joanne, in the interest of time, I'm not going to have you give feedback on what they said. I'm going to move to another very different topic from James Sinclair's list. James, you had a couple of real zingers in here, but the one that really caught my eye, you say, as it relates to HR and organizations and people, the big shift will be that people own their own profiles and data, not the companies they work for. And companies will bid to gain access to your competencies. You've got to explain to us, what does that mean? It sounds exciting and scary at the same time. James?
3: Yeah, it does sound exciting and scary. And I'm trying to recognize how I was that articulate when I wrote it. Uh, and I think it <laughs> leads into this conversation of just how the workforce is changing where you have as an individual more ownership of what you do where you go and who has access to what, as Paddy calls your output um mm-hmm. and as it relates to the conversation of you know risk and your risk appetite different companies are going to want to benefit from that so i just think the the organizations as a whole Uh, are moving to this recognition of we just need the right person with the right skills, that's the right fit, at the right time. We don't care whether they're full-time, part-time, alumni, we don't care. We just want access to that. And you can't do that in the traditional realm of HR where you come in and you have all of these very programmatic processes that kind of exclude so many people that might have their talent. Uh, And so, with this changing workforce, with all of these new skills being created, uh, the velocity that we're changing, uh, the to access that talent, I think, means that the end user, um, the person, will own it, um, and therefore, they'll be more mobile as opposed to the company. Therefore, you won't have a profile at 15 different companies you worked at. You'll have your sole profile, um, and essentially companies will access that and choose to engage with that. Uh, and I think that's where it's already starting to head. You already see it with kind of the gig economy profiles uh, on some mm-hmm. sites. Uh, and I think certain elements of the HR... Base are certainly going in in that direction uh, and i think it's just more recognizing the change that what happened to work yesterday isn't going to necessarily work tomorrow uh and whether it's as as wild as the thought that i'm going to own my own competencies and the performance against those competencies or not uh i don't know uh, but i recognize a change is near joanne probably knows the answer
1: well, I was going to go to Patty next, but since you summoned Joanne, Joanne, you want to chime in and then we'll go around Sorry. to Patty?
2: No, it's okay. Sorry, what do you think? Sure. So, um, um, Both James and Patty brought up data, and data and technology present the opportunity, and I actually think it's a mandate now, for all employees to create exponential value for their business. So if I may call them the digitally fluent worker, can now transcend historical functional silos and systems. More broadly, build new relationships and engage in outcome-based initiatives with colleagues across the enterprise and external ecosystems. So out of everything we're talking about today, this change may be the most disruptive and complex. As new technology capabilities rapidly present themselves into our work lives, at stake is the core of how do I fit in, what does this mean to me? And I know for myself in just about every industry discussion regarding, quote-unquote, digital transformation, the key challenges noted are change management and skills, um, plus motivating and rewarding a culture of inclusiveness and co-innovation. So um, as we think about, then, technology support, collaboration platforms don't solve for these challenges, but I think they could do much more to personalize employee experience. And uh, taking a page from personalized customer experience. Patty alluded a few moments ago. You know, everyone knows what she bought at Zappos. Um, so integration with culture, performance, management, incentives, um, really I think has to be this personalization um, of, uh, of the employee, and again, I'm going to use the term experience, and it is because I agree um, we're now taking control of the human aspect and owning our own um, competencies and our own accountability to grow and develop those competencies and how we work with machines and with others. Um, But at the same time, smart companies and enterprises really have to create a fertile environment for that. Thank you, Joanne. Patty Fletcher,
1: love to get your thoughts. Interesting topic on the table, as you said before. Go ahead, Patty.
4: It is. Um, So let's, let's think about, James, what you said, right? There's a big shift that people own their own profiles. They own their their output, what they bring to the table. That shift is huge because it represents a power shift. There is... There are the millennials, there are more and more women who are um, like kind of outside-the-box workers, there is the upcoming Gen Z that absolutely understand leaders are only leaders when followers enable them to be. I'm going to pick and choose who I partner with. That is not only a brand experience, it has to be translated, like Joanne said, into the overall experience, work experience, right? So not only how people are treating each other, but the tools that you give me, going back to our previous section around does it make me productive right am i wasting my time <laughs> which is what we hear most. And, and you know james gave a really good example of that and this is important when we look at the fourth industrial revolution the, the revolution the velocity, the velocity right that the, the size the volume the the speed of change is so unbelievably complex it's crazy and companies that do not look at that power shift that um that people really owning their own output and deciding where they want to plug and play, they will be out of business. In the third industrial revolution, when digitization really started to take form away from automation, it killed so many companies. We all point to the Ubers and, and all of that. But when we look mm-hmm. at the facts, less than 50% of the Fortune 1000 um, from the year 2000 are lo- no longer in business. That's only going to accelerate if companies yeah. do not, figure out the problem James just brought up. It's a big deal.
1: Thank you very much, Patty. And Patty, you're up next, and I think we can squeeze in one more topic here before we go to our predictions round called the crystal ball. Interesting, another provocative comment here. You say, when we think about the future of work, the future of leadership, and the future of people interaction with government, commerce, and each other, the lines between people and machines will continue to blur. I'm not sure what picture I've got in my head, but I see robots coming to work in one door and I see people in the other, Patty, and I'm not sure which stations they go to or whether people say, okay, goodbye, Joshua with a robot. I know you're going to be doing my work from today from 10 to 12 and I'll see you at one o'clock when it's my turn. How does, how does that work? Where are these lines blurring, Patty?
4: Yeah. And you know, you hear a lot of, provocative, the future of HR is no HR, right? Because I do absolutely have to look at what the strategies are in an organization and what is our capacity not only to fulfill today, but also tomorrow. What research numbers show us, and James, this points to what you were talking about during the beginning, are numbers like 40 to 75 million bank jobs globally, just in banking, will be replaced by robots by 2025. Mm. 64% to 81% of all current work in the U.S. could be replaced by automation. The current rule of thumb as we head into this fourth industrial revolution in these first few years are if it takes a human less than one second to make a decision, it can be replaced by a robot. So that's the kind of Thing, right. That we need to be thinking about, not just from a process perspective, but from a how the work gets done output perspective. By the way, I just you can tell I just came from a banking customer. It takes only two weeks to train a robot how to do most things that like a teller would do as an example or somebody who works in a banking you know, on the retail side whereas it takes humans far longer so think about that return on investment um, and there of course are you know different kinds of creative jobs jobs that require high um, high relationships or jobs where like a plumber right where you know you're going to look at a leaky pipe which leads to another problem which leads to another problem that, that just can't be replaced that that's super important um, but when it, when it comes to this topic, understanding how those machines are going to interact, like right? when you are designing a workforce, like James said, we're starting to look more at competencies, we're starting to see people talk about getting away from things like organizational structures and instead structuring around kind of networks of teams, right, for, mm-hmm. for whatever the, the thing is that has to get done. We now are saying, okay, every single person in the business, you have to be a technologist. You have to understand the work that has to be done and what the role of that machine is in completing it. And, oh, by the way, what is the experience that a person would expect with that machine? And just in terms of inclusion, I think, James, you brought it up, or or Joanne, what's really, really interesting about robots, I I just read this yesterday, so I'm going to totally share it. So, you know, Bonnie, you mentioned robots come in one door we come in the other right we humans did you know research found that humans are racist when it comes to robots as well so we even have a diversity and inclusion problem and it just kills me with we like white robots we don't like not non-white robots yes we do not listen we doubt what they say so we have this whole other problem we're going to have to overcome which come on humans figure this stuff out but yes very very interesting well, all
1: i could say is wow you Brought me to a halt here, Patty. How dare yeah, you? Yeah, me too. <laughs> but yeah, that is, yeah. I, let's not even touch that one. Wow. I am yeah. going to tweet it, though. <laughs> Research found humans are racist when it comes to the color of robots and how they, mm-hmm. and what is it, how they react to the robots and how they respond? Yes, yeah,
4: do they believe them? Exactly. Yep. Yep. Will they listen? Do they believe? Will they act?
1: Okay, Uh, fascinating. You know what? We are at 50 after we have seven minutes left. We're going to, instead of going around the table on this one, Patty, you might need to bring this panel back for part two. That's up to you because this is your series. I'm going to go around the table slightly to Joanne Mandels and Joanne ask you to look into the crystal ball. Let's go out as far as between 20 and 2025 because 2020 is... Almost here. I think people are already planning for champagne on that New Year's Eve, not that far away. Uh, Joanne, what do you see that will change about this conversation if we met again in that time frame? What will be different about, will we be on the fifth industrial revolution? Will we still be talking about people in the workforce, or will it only be machines? Will they be reading our resumes and telling us whether we can have a job or not, or we'll be all sitting on the beach drinking egg creams? Joanne Mendels, 60 seconds, it's all yours, go.
2: Okay. So, I have a very broad view of inclusion and diversity, which I won't get into in 60 seconds. So, I think in 2025, we're going to be experiencing major disequilibriums, um, and they will be pervasive. I can't say if they're going to be good, bad, or indifferent, um, but as uh, my co-speakers earlier had talked about, just the peace and the velocity and the possibilities of change... Um, on all fronts are just enormous so um, I'm excited about the future I'm very optimistic but uh, we're, we're, we're going to be in for a ride going to be in for a ride that's one of the more provocative
1: brief and to the points pro, uh, <laughs> pr- predictions we've ever had in about 1500 game changers shows thank you Joanne you made your mark let's go around the table to James Sinclair I can give you 90 seconds because Joanne was so concise James all yours
3: Yeah, I think we're going to see two things. I think it will all come back around to people and empathy, and we will remember that we are developing these tools and these advancements and these technologies um, and the velocity of them for the people. And it's the people creating them. And therefore, we will need to make sure, I believe, that by that time we will have learned how to develop and uh, move forward with a little bit more care, compassion, and recognition that it's, you know, for the people, by the people.
1: Thank you very much. I like that as well, Dr. Patty Fletcher. Patty, we have three and a half minutes. I can give you almost two minutes for your prediction. I bet you can use it. Go ahead, Patty Fletcher. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know you. Yeah.
4: Shocking, yeah. Shocking. Um, <laughs> Make me proud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely. So when I look, when you know, going back to the HR is going to look different, therefore people management is going to look different, and what are all the contributors to that? James brought up one of them, and that is the global talent economy, where it's no longer, we no longer are going to have the luxury as employers of viewing the workforce is almost static, which is how we view, right? There's going to be a lot of fluidity, and and like Joanne said, we're in for quite the ride, and it's going to be painful for both the the people who have the work and the people who need the work. What I see that the fourth industrial revolution enables us to do, of course, is present a whole another type of job, right? We we have a big upskilling problem. James, you had mentioned um, coal miners. The truth is they were very few jobs as coal miners anyway, but but I get your point, right? Those days are gone, and now we have to we have to upskill. So I do see um, business leaders taking and continuing to take more of an investment in that global talent economy. We see companies like IBM and I think even SAP and a few other technology companies have, have opened up six-year charter schools, for example, to get with that upskilling to teach cognitive science and anthropology and all of those empathy kinds of things where – Machines can be programmed to understand the reaction and interaction with humans, not only with the machine, but the machine facilitating with each other. The next piece is with all that data that comes out and the ability to ask different types of questions and get different types of learning, both from the big data analytics, but of course from artificial and augmented intelligence, is that business leaders, one of the key um, strengths for them, I personally believe is in addition to the voice of the market is that they can become the voice of the talent economy. They're going to be mm-hmm. competing for the best of the best, even more so than they are. Right. And it's now not going to be, look, I have the golden handcuffs because imagine how this is going to change. Like our employers as our insurance providers in the U S I and mean, that's just going to be enough, but to be able to have not only the voice of a talent economy, From the human perspective, which is huge and amazing and all the things, having like a global database of talent would be crazy, Um, but also from a robot perspective, going back to those numbers that I shared, as a leader, part of my job in 2025 is absolutely going to be creating my workforce that might... Not everybody might not have a heart with blood running through their veins, right? I might have a different type of workforce component um, that I have to be accountable for, which Patty? That brings up. Yep, sorry. Thank, oh, am I thank done? you. Did I use it all? You're yeah.
1: just about, you have one sentence to finish, then I've got to close. One sentence, go ahead.
4: No, I'm done. I'm done. Oh, you're Good. done.
1: That was yep. wonderful. Mm-hmm. You did make me proud, Patty Fletcher. Thank you very much. Yeah. Patty, what's <laughs> next? You have another episode coming up in about three weeks. Quick uh, preview. Any any idea yet what your topic's going to be? Real yes. fast.
4: Yes, we are. Um, in preparation for um, Success Connect in Las Vegas, we are yes. going to have a show by Dr. Gabby Berlaku, and it is focused on machine learning and artificial intelligence and bots. So, a great Wonderful. Next topic and Gabby is listening and she's been tweeting
1: thank you Dr. Gabby Berlaka we appreciate that back from her honeymoon she's keeping her name I understand for now but any day now we may get another one thank you Joanne Mendels 34 Park and so many more companies Joanne such a pleasure to get to know you James Sinclair love the energy come back anytime he's now Enterprise alumni Dr. Patty Fletcher it's your series come back every time what can I say but Gabby does a great job on air as well I'm Bonnie D. Graham I want to thank you for listening I certainly learned a lot and I bet all of you did too. Shout out to Aaron, our engineer at World Talk Radio. Thank you, Aaron. I'll be back tomorrow. What's tomorrow? Thursday, 10 a.m. We have something on tomorrow. I don't know. I think it's uh, Consumer Industries. I have to check. We only have 18 different series right now under the Game Changers banner. So fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a Game Changer today, just like Joanne Mendels, just like James Sinclair, and of course, just like Daddy, Dr. Patty Fletcher. Have a great day. Talk to you
0: tomorrow. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Changing the Game with HR, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.